It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Well, hello and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. It is a pleasure to welcome my first guest to the show today. And that is Leanne Kitty. Now, Leanne is on the show because she authored an article in The Conversation entitled, What is Sustainability Accounting? What does ESG mean? Good question. And we have answers. That's what really got my attention. We have answers. So we're going to try and get some answers out of Leanne today. But before we talk to Leanne about that, here's why she might have some of those answers. She obtained her undergraduate degree in business from Mount Allison University and her master's in business administration from McMaster University. She also has a PhD from Concordia University and she is a chartered professional accountant with a particular focus and passion for management accounting. Her work experience includes commercial finance, private company business validation. That's interesting. I'd like to maybe ask her about that. And work in the accounting education sector, most recently with the CPA Canada. Her current research investigates why companies use sustainability goals, there it is, and executive compensation packages, what kind of firms use these and what impact these incentives have on a firm's sustainability performance. So, Leanne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. It's a pleasure. Now, before we get going, I'm sure you get this question all the time. <laughs> and that is, accounting? Why are you in accounting? <laughs> what attracts you to accounting? But what attracted you to this kind of work? Yeah, so I've always been a numbers person, I guess you would say. Um, I've always had a, a, a talent for things in sort of math and science, and I actually started out uh, pursuing more biology, actually, okay. <laughs> and a bachelor of science. But uh, I ended up switching gears when I learned a little bit more about business, and I got very interested in how businesses worked. I ran a business for a while, uh, and the numbers side just clicked for me, I think because of that more or maybe scientific background, math-based background. Um, and I find it fascinating how we use the numbers to make decisions. So for mm. me, uh, I guess the numbers aren't really just numbers. It's it's telling a story about right. the business. Right. And in my early days of, of learning about accounting, uh, it was sort of explained to me that the origins of accounting were around providing an account for the business, mm. providing accountability, sure. uh, but telling that story of the business. And so when I discovered sustainability accounting, uh, also known as social and environmental accounting, that part really resonated with me because I thought, yeah, you know, the, the financial side, that's not the whole story of the business. That's not providing a full account of the impacts that the business is having. Having. Uh, and so I got very, very interested in studying how organizations uh, could use this type of information to communicate their impacts on society and the environment and more recently uh, on sustainability itself. Interesting. Very interesting. I liked how you described that tie-in with science and business. Now, your article, What is Sustainability Accounting? A question mark. What does ESG mean? And we have answers. So, and I should also mention that Leanne is an assistant professor at Sprout School of Business at Carleton University as well. So, 
let's get into this. The idea of what sustainability accounting is, first of all, what, what is that? Yeah, and it's it's a great question. Uh, I, I did my best to try to answer some of it in the article, but um, it's really, it's in development. I would say at its core, it's trying to provide for that responsibility uh, in terms of communication of a firm's impacts on sustainability. And, you know, even within that, we don't have a universally accepted definition of what do we mean by sustainability, but I tend to think of it as a planetary level concept. So something that um, affects all of us on the planet, um, I would include social and environmental in that. So issues around inequality, safety, diversity, uh, as well as the impact on the planet. Uh, And so if we think of sustainability as being that sort of worldwide sustainable level concept, um, the accounting part comes into how do we measure that? How do we communicate that? How do we understand how a firm might be affecting that in a positive or a negative way. And so sustainability accounting at its core is really trying to look at uh, providing those types of communication. And some of them are quantitative. Uh, It might be measuring, let's say, for example, greenhouse gas emissions from a firm. Uh, But it can also be qualitative. It can also be descriptive in terms of stakeholders' experiences and the impacts a firm may have on them as well. Mm. Right. Now, you describe in your article sustainability accounting, pretty much like you said, a practice of measuring, analyzing, and reporting a company's social and environmental impacts. ESG, you say, refers to the environmental, social, and governance information about a firm. And you also, you, you brought this into the, to the picture as well. Post-pandemic, we're going to need to build back better and sustainability is going to be key in that issue. Now, you, you brought up some of those other things like inequality, inequity, that has also, COVID-19 has really brought forward in how that has affected the people's ability to even do their own job and be paid adequately and how that has all unfolded. So do you think sustainability going forward is going to be something that is going to be looked at in a more serious manner? I hope so. <laughs> that would absolutely be be my dream. I, I do think there's a lot more attention being paid to it, which has the potential to be very impactful. Um, certainly, if we're going to pay attention to true sustainability issues and measure those and report those in, in a, a way that really ties itself to that planetary concept, um, I am hopeful that we can see some real change. We have seen many companies paying more attention to this stuff. We have uh, more and more companies every year providing sustainability reports, uh, so detailing some of these impacts. We still have our challenges. We have uh, companies engaging in things like greenwashing, right, where they're not telling the whole story. They may only be talking about the positive effects or the positive impacts they're having. And that's not really in line with it. So I think we have a lot of work to do. Um, But as I mentioned in the article with ESG in particular, um, that tends to be a term used more, I would say, in the investing world. Uh, But 
the investments are turning towards this type of information, in part because there's growing uh, evidence that it's good business to pay attention to these factors, whether that be to reduce the risk or to take care of your social resources, the people that are working with you and for you, the communities that you're operating in, the uh, environmental resources that you may be using, uh, be it water or trees, wood, paper. Uh, so I think organizations are starting to realize that this is is good business to pay attention to it, but also we're asking more questions. And I think on that front, when you have investors pushing for more change, as long as there is action behind it, I think we do have ourselves set up for potential uh, positive impacts down the road. But it remains to be seen whether or not that will be uh, enforced, whether people will um, take it seriously and actually push for real change. But I'm hopeful. I want to go back to the idea of no universal definition of sustainability, Mm. because at the very heart, I think there is a universal understanding of what that is. And you allude to that. And that is the idea of meeting our needs without sacrificing the needs of our future generations and our current generations. Uh, I've heard it said, and maybe you've heard this as well, that we don't leave the earth to our children. We are borrowing it from our children because that's who we're leaving it to. Absolutely. I have four little ones myself and I uh, do this work in part for them because I really believe uh, we, we are borrowing the earth from our children. And I want to make sure that what we're borrowing, we hand back in better condition. I, I would uh, mm. aim for for mm. sure. In terms of a, a universal definition, I think we all do inherently have that. The challenge becomes when we start looking at regulations, um, accounting standards, and then we run into a little bit of difficulty because there are a lot of people claiming Uh, to practice sustainability accounting or report their sustainability performance, but they're not actually making that connection to the future. They're not making the connection necessarily to the planet. Mm. Um, And so this is, this is an issue because we end up having reports that say, yes, we are sustainable or we are doing this, we are doing that, but really it's, it's about short-term concepts. And I, I make a little bit of reference to this in terms of, of uh, some of the upcoming uh, standards that may be put into place. Uh, Investors are very interested in this area, but I think we need to be careful that we don't allow uh, a short-term focus on particular issues to dominate what we actually need to see from firms. Uh, And a great example that was given on a call, and this is not my own, um, but it was Carol Adams that provided this example, was around the pandemic. And in terms of the pandemic, we've known that something was coming for a while. This has been predicted. Mm -hmm. Uh, But investors were not asking questions of firms in, let's say, the tourism industry or restaurant industries, cruise ships, about what their pandemic plans were. Mm. They weren't thinking long-term enough. Uh, So I think we have to be wary of letting investors drive Uh, what gets included in some of these standards because they tend to have a shorter term focus and perhaps 
not the planetary level sustainability definition or that future focus that I think we really need to make sure we're getting the information we need to create true sustainability. So I guess my fear would be as long as we're using the term sustainability in sort of that agreed upon fashion that we're really talking about the future and having something uh, like a circular economy and something that can be sustained, that's great. But if we're using the term in a way that uh, masquerades as sustainability, I think then we might be in danger. We may think we're getting something very different than what we're actually getting. Mm. I like that word you used about masquerading because it, it, it seems to me that what keeps coming back to me is just the way the markets operate and, you know, that that frenzy that goes on daily that we see, you know, um, perhaps now because of COVID-19, that may ch- do you think that might change because we have been forced into this situation? Just like you said, no one had these these things. They weren't thinking about what would happen in a pandemic. They weren't thinking about those things, but that has now come forward. And I'm sure that's going to be implemented in in many businesses plans going forward. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's one of those things where we absolutely have to focus on the long term. I mean, as a species, it's in our best interest just for survival. The Earth will go on without us, but yep. we need the Earth <laughs> to yep. survive. So I'm hopeful. I'm an optimist. I am forever an optimist. That's why I do this work. I am hopeful that we can uh, facilitate change. And I do believe that there are organizations out there that are really trying to do better. Uh, I think we need a concerted effort from all areas, from government in terms of regulation, in terms of mandating this information from firms, because right now it's voluntary. So we do get some information, but it's what a firm chooses to give us. Right. And that, as I said, does not always represent the total picture. Mm. Um, But it's also not always in a firm's best interest to tell us everything because not everybody else is doing that. So I think we need mandatory information. Uh, It needs to be at that planetary level. It needs to be overall sustainability. Um, And I think we need it sooner rather than later. I, I really believe we have to do this. There are firms uh, focused on aspects of this, uh, but there are also firms that are not. And I think we need to have better systems in place, um, as I usually describe it, to identify the wolf in sheep's clothing. Mm. Um, Right now, there really are a lot that are hiding in plain sight, and we don't have good ways to tell them apart. Yeah, interesting. I think in your articles, you also allude to the fact that that there's, what, about 100 companies or so that are causing about 70% of our our greenhouse gases? Absolutely. I mean, when I came across that, I was fascinated because 71%, according to this report, of the greenhouse gas emissions are coming from just 100 companies. Mm. Now, on the one hand, that's kind of depressing. On the other hand, I think it speaks to if we can influence those 100 companies to make a change, that change could be potentially huge. Um, But we need to have, you know, standards in place. We need to get those firms to change. We need to be aware of, of who the firms are and what they're doing and how they're doing it. And absolutely. I mean, some of these companies have been aware uh, of greenhouse gas emissions uh, issues, for example, for decades and have not shared it. 
have not brought it forth. Very, very similar to the tobacco industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's an issue. But we need to force that information. I think we're at a tipping point now where uh, if we don't do something soon, it, it really is to our own detriment. Mm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You could also be listening on one of your favorite podcast platforms and on our SoundCloud. You can always go there to listen to some of our previously recorded conversations and interviews at your leisure. My guest here on the show, today is Leanne Kitty. She is an assistant professor at Sprout School of Business at Carleton University. Talking to her about her article that she authored in the conversation entitled, What is Sustainability Accounting? What does ESG mean? And we have answers. ESG refers to the environmental, social and governance information about a firm. Now, we have been talking about uh, many of those aspects as as sustainability, what that means, the fact that it is voluntary at this point. Leanne, one of the things I, I, I was also thinking about as, as we've been talking is investors. You've been mentioning investors, and I, I was thinking about some of those, uh, you know, the companies have been operating also at the idea of their shareholders and, you know, the, and thinking about them instead of the big picture as well. And hopefully that's going to change. And, uh, you know, the other thing is that Shareholders are people. Companies are run by people. And we are all sharing this planet. And if we think about the business or what our what we're doing for our shareholders rather than the overall big picture. And if our share, if the shareholders are only looking at the short term idea of what am I going what are the dividends I'm going to get back or what am I getting in return and not thinking about our big picture, we're still running into the same old issues. Absolutely. And and I think that's a really critical point. Um, we are investors. <laughs> it's right. us, right? Uh, this is our money for those of us, you know, if you have a mutual fund or if you're fortunate enough to have a, a pension fund at work, maybe an RSP you have some investments in or TFSA, um, that's, that's your money. And if you've invested in these firms, you get a vote. One of the challenges is we tend to delegate those votes mm. to the companies. Mm. to uh, the mutual fund companies. And so we're not always taking our power back and letting our voice be heard. Uh, But that is a powerful way if you use your vote to actually vote on some of the issues that come up on these topics or letting the mutual fund companies know or your pension plans know that, hey, we don't want this anymore, right? That's a way that you can exercise your power um, and, and I'm fully aware, especially with inequality, not everybody is fortunate enough to have investments and the ones who, who typically don't are the ones who are suffering more so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that just raises uh, the stakes for all of us uh, that may be in the market, may be investors to really take that responsibility seriously and not sit back passively, but but actually make your voice heard and let them know that these are issues that are important to you, uh, whether it be that you want your investments to divest from some of these organizations, whether you want them to push for change. Um, There's a lot that we can do beyond, uh, you know, our individual lives as well and how we live. But particularly as investors, you know, where the money is, is typically where the influence is. Mm. 
All right. There has been for some time uh, investments that you can make that are uh, geared toward the the world. They're greener. Yeah, and and there are uh, a number of funds that are, are coming online, uh, especially in the last year or so. We're seeing more and more of these um, available. I will say, coming back to the sustainability accounting piece, mm-hmm. we still have a lot of challenges in terms mm-hmm. of measuring the real sustainability performance of the firm. So I would just say to be a bit cautious about uh some of them. It's not to say that that we shouldn't be paying attention to these things. We absolutely should. And we should be pushing for more information and for more change. Um, but the way we're measuring some of the stuff right now, as I mentioned, it's mostly voluntary. So firms um, can kind of say what they want to say. And that does influence inclusion in some of these funds. So it's still early days. It's, it's getting better. We're working hard. Uh, not just myself, but there's a lot of us in the community that are working really hard to try to improve how we look at these firms and how we measure it and what information is important. Um, But certainly I think making your voice heard to say that these are important issues for you and that you want better information so you can make better decisions, I think will push the money to get that information, uh, make it higher quality and make it more relevant to true sustainability at a planetary level. You said early days. What do you mean by that? How, how long has sustainability sort of been something that in terms of accounting has been around or that is something that is being looked at? Yeah, I mean, the, the field itself has been around uh, arguably since maybe the 70s, mm. um, really kind of was developed in the perhaps 80s, 90s-ish. Um, but it's it's growing every day. We see more and more people, uh, say, on the academic side, pursuing research in this area. Um, and there's more of us trying to think about these issues and and what they mean for us as a society, for the planet, for firms as well. Um, and when I say early days, I guess what I really mean is that uh, we don't have all the systems fully figured out just yet. So I don't want to make the claim that, you know, we know how to measure the exact performance of a firm and how it contributes to sustainability. We don't. And that's, I guess, my fear when we talk about some of the sustainable, responsible investing funds um, or ESG. It gives the impression sometimes that that we figured it out. We know how to measure this stuff. And and the truth is, we don't yet. We have improvements. Uh, we have better ways to do it now than we used to. And it's it's growing every day. But we still have a lot of work to do. We still have uh, a lot more information to gather. Um, and that really comes back to the information that we get from firms or that's required by government, um, which comes back to this issue of, of it being voluntary at this stage. As you were talking there, I couldn't help but think about someone else I interviewed who wrote a book on what if solving the climate crisis crisis was simple. And uh, that's the name of the, the book he authored. In, in that book, he, he is a business owner. He was a business owner. And he moved on to other things in terms of the environment, which he's now focused on. And one of the things as a company that he did was look at the carbon put, footprint that they were producing. And he got his entire company to do similar 
simple things to change to try and work towards that. And, you know, changing light bulbs, et cetera, et cetera, all of these kind of things and, and other things that they did. And he got the whole company involved and he, he saw a couple of different things that happened. One, uh, everyone was more involved and more, more um, engaged in what they were doing at work. And he started to see people starting to come up with their own ideas of what they could do to help change and, and do those kind of things. But, you know, he started to implement these little things and he was saying, these are just like nickel and dime things, you know, they're not really much. But when they finished and he had and he came back and he started looking at the numbers, they had done a drastic amount to reduce their carbon footprint. And it was amazing. They were saving money as well. So it was beneficial for them as a, as a business to do that. So I find that really interesting. And if, if more businesses did that, they might find the benefit of moving forward in this way as well. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention about that was... I forgot. <laughs> but uh, Well, I think you brought up some really interesting points, though. Mm. You know, one is bringing the information to the table changes the way you make decisions. Right. Mm. And I think that's that's a great point about um, how we decide to go ahead. Sometimes it's as simple as just being aware. Right. Mm. If you have two projects to do and you're looking at them both and maybe they both make about the same amount of money. OK, well, we'll do one over the other. If you look at those same two projects and you say, oh, but wait, this one will have a lower carbon footprint. All of a sudden, it may change the way you're looking at that project. And you say, well, as long as they're both profitable, then let's do the lower carbon footprint uh, version. But without that information, you may not make that same decision, which is why I'm so passionate about the information side. I think the second part that's really important is uh, when you mentioned about how everybody started coming up with ideas, mm. right? And mm. this is why, you know, diversity on a boardroom table is so important. Diversity mm. in management. It's those diversity of ideas. Mm. It's bringing those different perspectives because Everyone will come and see the issue slightly differently and bring such valuable insights. And I think that really is such a powerful, powerful potential tool to make changes. And that's why, you know, the the GRI standards, for example, they are multi-stakeholder focused. They take a variety of perspectives uh, to try to get, um, you know, I think of it as multiple snapshots of the firm from different angles. Um, In this case, it might be multiple snapshots of the problem to look at it differently and come up with different solutions. And I think that's really important as we go forward, that we are taking lots of different perspectives on the firm and the firm's impacts on different projects. Um, and, and again, I mean, just to be wary, I would be a bit wary about being solely focused on, say, investors as a group to guide the information that we need, because uh, they may only be looking at it from one perspective, or it might be more limited. Whereas when you gather all of those um, perspectives, I really do think it leads to richer and better decision making. Right. Leanne, we're going to have to leave it there. It's been fascinating speaking with you. I thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and talk to us about what is sustainability accounting and what does ESG mean? And we have answers and we've discussed some of those answers, I think, that we can look forward to. And I want to thank you once again for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. That is Leanne Kitty. She is an assistant professor at Sprout School of Business at Carleton University. It's been a pleasure talking to her. We'll be right back with more right after this, right here on A Moment of Truth. 
Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. It is a pleasure to welcome to this part of the program, Catherine Rosenberg. Going to be speaking with Catherine about an article she authored in The Conversation entitled, Tech Giants Need to Step Up to Help Close Canada's Digital Divide. A little bit more information about Catherine. She is a professor in electrical and computer engineering at the University of Waterloo. And since 2010, she has held a Tier 1 Canada Research chair in future internet she started her career in alcatel france and then moved on to at&t bell labs in the usa and from 1988 until 1996 she was a faculty member at the department of electrical and computer engineering at ecole polytechnic in montreal in 1996 she joined nortel networks in the uk where she created and headed the r&d department in broadband satellite networking and in 1999 dr rosenberg became the professor in the school of Electrical and Computer Engineering in Purdue University, where she co-founded in May of 2002 the Center for Wireless Systems and Applications. And she joined the University of Waterloo on September 1st and September of 04 as the chair of the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering for a three-year term. And she was elected the IEEE Fellow for Contributions to Resource Management in Wireless and Satellite Networks in 2011 and a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Engineering in 2013. She's authored over 150 papers on broadband and wireless networking and traffic engineering and smart grids and has been granted eight U.S. patents. So it's a pleasure to welcome her to the show. Professor Catherine Rosenberg, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for this introduction. Now, your article, Tech Giants Need to Step Up to Help Close the Divide of Canada's Digital Divide. Uh, An interesting one. And I also noticed, you know, I'm very happy to have you on the show because of your your background in wireless and satellite internet services, which of course the north, the northern parts of Canada uh, have been suffering that divide for quite a long time. Absolutely, absolutely. This uh, this article you are referring to in the conversation is really about uh, those northern communities. They uh, have access to the internet only through satellite, and that really creates what I call a deep digital divide. Right, a digital divide is a term used to 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 explain the fact that different people have a different uh, level of uh, internet connectivity, and uh, some of us have a very good internet connectivities and some very bad one, either because of technical infrastructure issues such as satellite links or when you live in rural areas because the infrastructure also is quite uh, uh, old and some are getting uh, have a digital divide problem for social issues mm. right because they they can't afford the uh, the internet fees they have to pay for, right? Mm-hmm. So, but this paper is really about the northern remote communities that have uh, deep digital divide issues linked to their satellite connectivity. And of course, that has only become pronounced even more due to COVID-19 and how we found we've had to rely so much more on our internet services, much like we're doing right now, um, because of the separation we need to keep from each other and need to connect in this way right now. But I guess in some ways that has 
has helped us to see some of these areas that need help, that need to be uh, brought up to speed, so to speak. And also, we, we've heard about this issue from the North many times before. Now, Canada has also said it's going to be, or it is now in the works of bringing those internet services or trying to implement better internet services right across Canada and into the North. Absolutely. And there are many ways you can do that depending on the setting. For example, in rural areas, you can hope that 5G is going to help a lot bridge the digital divide. However, uh, for bridging the digital divide in a remote community, it's unclear if 5G is going to be the solution or what is the solution. And um, the, the point we are arguing in, in the paper is that uh, this is not a problem that can be solved by internet service providers alone. It has to be solved by many stakeholders, including the content providers, the Google, the Facebook, the YouTube of this world, the Netflix of this world. Hmm. Now, you know, when I think of satellite service, we know that there are more and more satellites being put into our atmosphere or above the Earth. Uh, certainly uh, Starlink, uh, Elon Musk is is creating, a, a, I guess, a web of satellites, low-orbit satellites that he's producing. I did an interview a little while ago with a community in uh, in Picanjicum that recently received one of those satellites uh, and dishes as a as a test uh, to see if that could help improve the uh, satellite and, and internet service they were uh, receiving prior to that that seemed to have gone really well and they see, they saw an immediate uh, uh, improvement what what is happening above the earth right now though do, 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 that you know of in terms of uh, the wireless services that are being um launched and are and how are they improving what's going on up there right now well clearly as you said i mean uh, so far most of the connective satellite connectivity was who uh, what we call geo, geostationary mm. satellites that are very far from earth and hence the latency is very high it's very good for a large footprint for tv broadcast but not that great for communication connectivity mm. With lower Earth uh, orbit satellite, you are able to uh, to be closer from the Earth. Hence, there is less latency problem for um, the internet connectivity. However, the footprint is smaller, so which might be an issue at some point. So, so clearly, all those are good things for northern remote communities. It's going to improve a little bit the internet connectivity, but it will never be uh, fiber-like. Mm. Now, just and let's not forget that if we, are, if we are trying to give a quality of experience to the northern remote community that is uh, equivalent to urban uh, areas such as Toronto, Montreal and so on, then clearly there is a problem. No satellite ever is going to provide that. Mm. Was, when I was reading your article and, and about the challenges that are being faced here, and 
connectivity in terms of, for instance, we are probably using broadband internet that is fed over fiber optics that really help us to have a larger bandwidth and create a, a, a very quick and very responsive system that we can we can communicate over. Uh, I've always been told to try and not use uh, a wireless connecti- connect- connection when doing these kinds of interviews because we want to have a wired system. It just makes it that much more robust and, and uh, also responsive um, without dropouts, those kind of things. Thinking or, or remembering that there were, there's cables buried under the, under the ocean that go from North America to, to Europe. I don't know if that's accurate and I don't know if, there's, if it's yes. possible, but is that the kind of thing that we need to try and set up from going north to south then? To, to oh, better no no no? No, no, no no this is this is never going to happen it's too expensive mm. I mean, uh, what, uh, what what you when you look at infrastructure for remote community the reality is there is no business case so you don't do mm. it because there is a business case mm. you do it because you have to right because it's the right thing to do okay, okay. yeah but then uh, uh, digging holes and putting cables to, to, the, to the, those communities is not the way the way forward. The way forward is to use satellite to continue using satellite, but to use it well, right? So mm. basically, the satellite will remain the bottleneck. But the problem is today we live in a world where everybody creates huge amount of traffic on the internet, and most of this traffic is not useful. So. Uh, the simple example, right, is uh, when you read a, a magazine of your choice on the internet, you get a lot of uh, advertisement. Mm-hmm. And uh, you get a lot of rich media. And most of those rich media you don't care about, you do, are not interested. So it's pushed into your phone or your computer. Mm. And the question is, we should not be pushing anything to remote community because it's it's really... Uh, um, uh, congesting the, 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 the satellite link. So what should be sent to the remote communities, what they need, and not other things that they might or might not be interested in. Mm. So the, the, in that sense, we need to manage the, the access to the satellite link well. It, 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 think of it, it's like a very expensive and important resource, and we cannot waste it on useless information to, to transmit useless information. Well, you know, I like right? the sound of that myself. I wouldn't mind receiving stuff with less <laughs> advertising. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree with you, but that's a separate problem. Yes. <laughs> and, and I believe that the, the, the content providers would be ready to do it for northern remote communities because they understand that they are uh, they are limited by their satellite link. Mm. They don't want to do it for everyone because that's the way they make money. Right. Right. But so, so even if I agree with you, I think we have to separate the issue here. Yes. Uh, the, the point we are making in this, in this uh, article is that indeed you have to consider that the remote uh, communities uh, have a special status. They are not in a situation where, where they can be pushed, where they, they, they can be sent uh, information that is not useful. Right. Okay. And uh, so that's the first point we are making. Rich, the internet becomes richer and richer. It's more, I use a strong term here, but it's more and more polluted by mm. information that nobody asks for. Mm-hmm. 
And that's not good, but that's a very important problem, but not the point of this, uh, necessarily of this article. And that also the content provider are using what I call deep encryption. So they are encrypting everything, including, and that's uh, the, 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 the address on the, if you think of a packet as a, as a real package, there is an address on each packet, and this address is also hidden in some mm. way. And, and, and the point we are making, which is a technical point, is by using deep encryption, the, the content providers are, are, are preventing the internet service provider to, to control and to use the satellite link intelligently. And we are saying the satellite link cannot be used badly. It has to be used smartly. Mm. And for that, the, 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 the service provider needs to be, uh, cannot be blind. And they are blinded by the, the deep encryption uh, performed by the content provider. Hmm. So then a couple of things come to mind. One is, is what improvements are being made to move forward to help with this situation about bandwidth and de- delivering uh, these services to the north that will help um, adding bandwidth? How, how can we improve the bandwidth? Um, well, so, so improving the bandwidth, as, I, as you said very well at the beginning, can be, can be done through a different satellite system. Mm. Um, the, the problem of those satellite systems is they are very costly. They look wonderful on paper, but they are not providing a huge amount, more, a huge amount of ex, uh, extra capacity. Mm. Right? So it's going to be nice, but it's not going to, to be a paradigm sh- shift. Mm. Okay, so that's the first mm. thing we need to understand. Okay. So, yes, we should do those kind of things, and it's going to help, but it's not going to make uh, the, the quality of experience of, uh, of a user in a northern community equivalent to a user in Toronto. Mm. So, so that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing is we need to convince one way or, of, or another the, the, the content provider to uh, to deal with those communities differently from the way they deal with other users in Canada. So basically, create a special status and maybe um, allow the the, 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 the the traffic to be sent to this user to be better controlled and uh, better filtered. Because we cannot afford to send information that is useless on this on those links. Mm. And what we say in the article in the conversation is we are uh, hopeful that they will they would do it because they have created those content providers have recognized the problem in Africa, for example, where for other reasons the infrastructure is also very limited and hence. The, the, the connectivity is very much bottlenecked. Mm. And they have provided different solutions for this, uh, these countries. So what we are saying is they know they have to do it in some cases. They were ready to do it for Africa. Then why not do it for their own northern communities in North America? Mm-hmm. Uh, are we seeing any 
technological advances in terms of being able to compress or, you know, uh, yeah, compress these files so that we are still delivering the same amount of information, but without taking up as much bandwidth? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is all those kind of things are already done. Compression mm. is being done. Mm. But, but you see, uh, when you think of um, a satellite link, you, you, you have to think of it both ways. You have to think of it as a broadcast link that basically is used for TV, mm. right? So you try to picture a satellite, the satellite sending new TV uh, data, right? Mm -hmm. So this is what we call the, the downlink. It goes from the satellite to the home or to right. the users, right? Mm -hmm. But with internet connectivity, you have to go the other way. You have right. to go from the users to the satellite to the internet at large, right? right. Mm -hmm. So that's called the uplink. Yep. And the uplink is a problem. Mm. And the, the second problem is the latency. Mm. And uh, so I don't want to enter too much into the detail, but 80% uh, uh, of the traffic, maybe maybe not 80%, but roughly 80% of the traffic is based on a protocol called TCP. And TCP is really a closed loop protocol which is which suffers a lot when there is a high latency. And satellite, especially geostationary satellite, have about uh, 250 millisecond latency, which is huge. Mm. So low Earth orbit satellite will help a lot in that. In, so not in terms of bandwidth, but more in terms of latency. Mm. So low Earth orbit satellites have two big advantages. They will improve bandwidth a little bit, but they will also decrease the latency problem. Right. Okay. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And uh, anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also listen on your favorite podcast platform. And on our Element FM uh, SoundCloud. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Professor Catherine Rosenberg. And she, we are talking to her about uh, an article she co-authored in the conversation entitled Tech Giants Need to Step Up to Help Close Canada's Digital Divide. Catherine, one of the things you mentioned there was you said to take away some of the pollution or the decluttering, I guess, of the the satellite uh reception and uh, uplink and downlink for northern communities so that we can feed more of that information in a reliable way to the north to bring them up to speed closer to what the southern uh, hemispheres are experiencing. And one of the things you mentioned was also about how you want to get the internet providers to try and get on board with that. And you, you believe that they, they will be acceptable to, to that idea. More, more, the internet providers are, are part of the solution, but more than the internet providers, when, when the government talks about uh, bridging the digital divide, mm. they always talk about the internet service providers as the main stakeholders, the ones that have to do the work. Mm. And the point of our article is to say, wait a minute, they can't do it alone. Mm. So the Rogers, the, 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 the Telus, the Bell of this world, or at least of our country, they cannot do, they cannot bridge the digital divide right, right. alone. 
they need the support and they need the goodwill of uh, the, what I call the content provider, the mm. Netflix, the new YouTube, the Google, mm -hmm. the Facebook of this uh, of this world, because they control the the the, 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 the content, mm -hmm. and hence they can make sure that. Uh, what is sent is useful, for example, right. and also that it is not encrypted in a way that makes the internet service providers blind. Now, you said something there about useful information. What what would you say is the amount of information that we are currently sending or receiving on a daily basis that is useful <laughs> and or cluttering up the internet? Well, this is a very interesting question. I always thought that there was a research project to be done on that. Mm. Um, I can give you my guess, but it's just a guess. Okay. right? Mm -hmm. uh, I would expect that at least 30 to 40% of the traffic in the internet is useless. Mm. That's huge. It is. It sure is. Right. And uh, uh, so, of course... They, you can say, what do you mean by useless? I mean, speaking just of my own uh, uh, experience, when I read uh, Globe and Mail, for example, do I uh, am I interested in all the, the ads that are placed on the page I'm reading? Most of those ads are now videos, so they are very rich in terms mm. of media content. Mm -hmm. Do I want to uh, all those? Do I look at them? No. So they have been pushed into the internet, they have been transferred, they have used energy, they have used bandwidth, and I'm not going to use them. Mm. Right. So in that sense, it's useless to me. Yeah. Right? Um, so maybe, how often do you click on a commercial that you see? Right. right. Relatively rarely, I suspect. Mm-hmm. And but still, they keep on sending you commercials, and the the the, the usefulness, the part the part of the the, the uh, of the page that you read is maybe what maybe fifty percent of the total page, maybe sixty. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. Plus, you have all those other things that are working in the background, which you now make me think of that those uh, service providers are doing, you know, the algorithms that are following what we're doing and where we're going and what we're seeing and wanting to improve, as they say, our experience online. Absolutely. So I didn't want to mention that because it becomes technical, mm. but you have what, what we call signaling, mm. which is really all the traffic that is being sent for all those routers, all those servers to synchronize and to work with each other. Right. Mm. So that's useful, but right. it's also uh, a part of the traffic that is uh, quite heavy and it's getting more and more heavy because nobody really cares to keep it under control. Mm. So the problem is everybody is thinking of the internet as a, an abstraction in which we can send as much traffic as we want. And instead of thinking of it as an infrastructure that we have to, uh, to use with, with care and to use with uh, parsimony. So you, you also talked about this special status that is needed. How would yeah. you see that unfolding? Well, the, the way we, we propose it in the article is to say, uh, let's assume that the UN, we, we need an entity that everybody respects and everybody is ready to mm -hmm. uh, to accept as being fair. 
the UN is uh, is giving this status so that it's not given to everybody who doesn't want commercials, right? That's the, right. so, but it's only given to the the the, uh, the entities that are indeed behind the satellite link, right? So they have a special status, and uh, and this is recognized. Think of it as uh, again the internet traffic. Is you can think of it as uh, letters. Each 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 piece of information is sent in what we call a packet, and the packet has a, an envelope. And in this envelope, you said, "Be careful, this comes from northern community." So that's the status. And hence, the internet treats those packets slightly differently. Okay. And uh, differently, why? Because, for example, we don't want to encrypt them too deep, so that we know that we are able to 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 uh, to allow for the protocol to be well suited to satellite then uh, and so on and so on and then the content providers when they receive packets from those uh, remote community they know that they should not put uh, too much commercial and they should uh, uh, maybe strip the commercials for 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 those uh, destination mm-hmm. And you just mentioned the UN there as as a possible um, something that everyone would recognize and respect. You you also say in your article that declared the internet access a human right five years ago. What does yeah. that mean? What does that mean that then mean for us as people? Well, it means first that the UN has recognized that uh, it, that the internet is becoming. Uh, uh, a right, mm. and hence uh, everybody should be able to access the internet and uh, to uh, uh, to learn about the, to learn also how to use the internet because it's not only a question of connectivity, right? We started this conversation by saying that the digital divide is not an always technical; sometimes it is social, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Depending on on your uh, means, you might not be able to uh, to afford right. a good connectivity. Right. But to go back to the UN, the UN is basically saying that everybody should have a reasonable access to the internet. So what is reasonable is uh, not defined. But uh, even in Canada, when we talk about uh, broadband connectivity that uh, um, that should be given to everybody, uh, it's questionable that the numbers are reasonable. I think they are quite low right now. The, the, govern- the, the, the numbers given by the government are mm. quite low. Mm. And by declaring that as a human right, does that then put pressure on governments to try to implement that? Yeah, as long as you believe government uh, uh, are pressured by the UN. <laughs> Right. I think the, the, the governments are, are pressured by uh, their public opinion mm. and, uh, and their public opinion has a better understanding now how the Internet is critical to, uh, to their, the day-to-day life of everyone. Mm. So I think uh, if you think of our governments, they are just interested in public opinion. Mm. And and so moving forward, you think that it's it's probably more advantageous to go after the content providers and and try to get them on board with this, but they they can't do it alone, nor can uh, the the internet uh, providers either. Yeah, I think uh, they need uh, they, 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 we need to recognize that there are many many stakeholders. 
and we need and when the government is trying to do something about bridging the digital divide which they are right i mean the canadian government is trying to then they should really create a task force that involves more than just service providers and of course the users meaning in that case the remote communities but also uh, content providers mm. and what can the average person do do you think is there anything that we can do what what can we do as a well i think we can vote <laughs> right <laughs> i guess i was just thinking more about in terms of the way we use the internet but i guess that really doesn't apply does it no i i think we are we have very little power with respect to the internet we are users we are mm. consumers mm -hmm. of traffic right yeah Uh, what we could do, and, and I, I thought of that several times, that we should create a label, like we have label for organic food. Maybe mm. we should have a label for uh, good applications, mm. applications that are not creating too much clutter, as you say it, in mm. the internet. Mm. And if we had this kind of label saying, oh, this application is uh, respectful of the internet, and this one is not, right. then maybe as a consumer, we could choose respectful application or right. uh, application with good label. Yeah. But right now, we don't have this kind of label. Mm, so right. the, the, as, a, as a user, we can't do much. Catherine, it's been fascinating speaking with you. I thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and share this information and talk about your article that you co-authored in the, uh, the conversation entitled Tech Giants Need to Step Up to Help Close Canada's Digital Divide. It's been a pleasure and uh, we hope people will go and read the article and get uh, up to speed on this, so to speak. <laughs> Thanks a lot, David. Very nice talking to you. Likewise. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye, David. Bye-bye. That's the voice of Catherine Rosenberg. She is a professor in electrical and computer engineering and Canada's research chair in the Future Network at the University of Waterloo. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you back again tomorrow right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. See you then. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.